Well, good morning. You know, all of us have lenses that we view everything in our world through. Even if you've never used the phrase worldview or never even heard of the phrase worldview, you got one. It's the, it's the lenses, it's the presuppositions, it's the values, it's the true beliefs that you see everything through. And you know, we would like to think that we formed our worldview from the Bible. I mean, that's the way it ought to be, right? But the truth is, most of us have kind of absorbed our worldview, I mean, we picked up a little something that we, you know, saw on Oprah and a little something from uh, science class our sophomore year and um, a whole lot of from the pains and the events that we go through in life. All of these different things kind of come together and a lot of times shape our worldview rather than it being the Word of God. Well, last couple of weekends we've looked at naturalism and pantheism. And I'm guessing that there's probably few of us in this room right now that would claim to be naturalists, and yet how often do we deal with decisions in our lives exactly like someone who doesn't even believe God exists, who thinks as though everything's on their shoulder, there's nothing supernatural in play, there's no great I am that would have any impact on these decisions. And we realize that we're more of a naturalist than we would probably care to admit. Or there's probably no one in this room who would claim to be a pantheist. But, you know, we go to yoga class and they tell us to clear our minds and to open ourselves up to the energy that's around us. And we just sort of absorb a little of this thinking. Or, or, Or he watched Deal or No Deal and how he says... And so how much money do you feel is in this case right now? (laughs) And then we find ourselves sitting around having a discussion with some of our friends or maybe in our small group and we're talking about things and somebody says, well, the Bible says, and we find ourselves saying, yeah, I know that, but I just feel like And we realize maybe we're more of a pantheist than we would care to admit. Well, today we want to deal with theism. It's the worldview that there is a God, singular, who is involved with his creation. He's separate from his creation, unlike pantheism that we saw last week, which is sort of God is everything and in everything. No, he's separate from his creation. He's a personal, active deity. I put this explanation from Norm Geisler in your notes. If you haven't pulled your message notes out, you may want to. There at the top, Norm Geisler says this. He says, theism is the belief that a transcendent God created the universe as a reality distinct from himself, but which he actively sustains through both a system of natural law, which he created, and through divine intervention at the moments that he deems such actions appropriate for the accomplishment of his divine will. A God who created this and who sustains this through both the laws that he put into place and when he chooses to step in at his determinations, he sustains all of this. 
Now, because America was founded as a Christian nation, we haven't known much other than theism until the last 60 years or so. Now, I'm not saying that everyone was a Christian or that everyone acted like a Christian, but for the most part, there was this agreed-upon notion of a personal deity being behind creation and the uh, continued existence of life. Maybe not so much anymore as our world has gotten smaller and things have become more global. We've been influenced beyond that. It might be easier for you to think of theism as opposed to atheism. You know, a, no, theo, God. Atheism is the belief that there is no God. And so theism is the opposite of that. It's the worldview of a personal God who is involved with his creation. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. He says, since what, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. That creation itself points so readily to a creator that anyone is without excuse not to believe that there is a God. Nathan Buzanitz puts it this way, Though some might deny God exists, they do so despite the obvious. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, there is more evidence to support that there is a God than that there isn't one. I mean, look at the world. Look at the universe. There's order. There's design. It's not just happenstance. It's not just chaos. There's design to it all. There's complexity to us that we're made up of cells that multiply and DNA and all of these aspects. Just the unity of creation. Henry Morris says it's not a multiverse. It's a universe. There's unity in all of this. And so all these things point to the likely conclusion of a creator, of a designer, of a cause that's behind all of this. In fact, I would say it takes faith to believe in the science of evolution alone as the full cause of everything. That's why Norm Geisler wrote a really good book that even has a better title. It's entitled, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Because we need to realize, atheists are people of faith too. Because even though they can't disprove God exists, they choose to believe it anyway. See? Now, all of this doesn't prove that this God, this creator, is the God of the Bible. But it sure points to a creator. And that's why in Romans 1, those verses that we just read a minute ago, Paul makes the argument that creation alone points to a creator. A divine being who's bigger and more powerful than us that created all of this. 
an uncaused cause, as it were. In fact, that's why I believe that what's really going on for people who want to deny all the evidence that points to a creator, what's really going on is that we just don't want to accept the ramifications of what it means if there is a creator. That if there is a God, then that means I'm positioned lower than him, that he has the right to call shots in my life rather than me, that he has the right to be in control and I don't, and all of those ramifications is what we really don't want to deal with. So we look past the evidence. In fact, Douglas Wilson says, that there's two fundamental tenets of atheism. Number one, there is no God. And number two, I hate him. (laughs) Now that that said little tongue-in-cheek, and yet my experience has been that for a whole lot of people who would claim to be atheists, if you dig down deep enough, There's many times some wound, some hurt, some experience that has caused them to look past the the likely solution of where did all this come from, see? John Gerstner in Reasons for Faith says this. He says, matter is an effect produced by an adequate cause. Clearly, that which is itself an effect cannot be the cause of all things in the beginning matter could not create the heavens and the earth because matter had first to be created but there is more in the universe than mere life there is intelligent life there is a kind of life which not only lives but which thinks about living now if matter could not produce plain life then how could it produce a thinking being? Again, Norm Geisler, who I quoted a minute ago, says this, the uncaused cause would need to be infinite, unchanging, all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-perfect. Anything less would be unable to be this uncaused cause. So you see, not only does creation point to this reality of a deity, of a powerful divine being who is involved with his creation, of a God, as if it were. But Paul says this in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 from the New Living Translation. It says this, Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it. Even without having heard it, they demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts. For their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they are doing right. That there is this built-in sense of right and wrong, of fair and unfair, of just and unjust that points to our connection to a deity who built that into us. And so, we see good reason to conclude that there is a God. That He's personal. That He's intelligent. That He's separate from His creation. 
And in fact, I would say that only because of some wound or some hurt or just not wanting to accept the ramifications of there being a God, those would be the only reasons that would cause anyone really to conclude otherwise. That's why Paul says, any person who does is without excuse. Again, back Romans 1, starting with verse 20 that I met a minute ago, and going just a little further, it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being like a human being and birds and animals and reptiles things they created with their hands we they worshiped things they created rather than the creator verse 24 therefore god gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another and they exchanged the truth about god for a lie and they worshipped and they served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. So that's theism, that there's a God. He's personal. He's intelligent. He's the one behind all of this. But what I wanted to deal with in the time that I have left are really two things about that then. So I was kind of thinking through, okay, we get that. That's pretty well spelled out. Here's my couple of questions. Question number one is, well then, how do we know that this God, this creator, this uncaused cause, is the God of the Bible? How do we know that? And then, just being the kind of practical guy that I am, the second question is, well, so what? I mean, what difference does that make? What difference does the existence of God impact how I live my life? How does it affect my view of the world? And so let's deal with it. Can we deal with those couple of questions this morning? Okay, I'm glad you said that because I'm doing it anyway, you know. So. I mean, you may as well be on the team as opposed to rooting against me, right? So, Question number one, here we go. How do we know then that this creator... That this uncaused cause is the God of the Bible. Because you see, theism is not only Christianity, but theism would also encompass uh, Judaism. It would encompass uh, Islam. It would encompass uh, Christian cults like Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses or others. And so how do we know that this creator God that is so obvious from creation is the God of the Bible. What can our confidence rest in? Here's what I would say. I think our confidence that Christianity is true rests in the reliability of two things. 
the reliability of the Bible and the reliability of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also he made the universe. Jesus was involved in creation. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, all involved. And the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided provision for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That Jesus is involved, not only was he involved in creation, but he's involved in the sustaining. He's God. And that after he provided purification for us, after he entered our world and died for our sins on the cross, rose from the grave, now he sits next to the, to the throne of God the Father. That the true God has revealed himself through his Son, stepping into our world, and through the recorded, written Word of God, the Bible. You know, we talk about Christianity as faith, and certainly that's a just term. Christianity is, takes faith. But never be confused that that's faith as opposed to facts. That that's faith as opposed to intelligence. Or that's faith as opposed to evidence. Because Christianity stands up to full scrutiny truly does. And so we need to know that, okay, if I'm going to believe that this God of the Bible is the true God, that creator, then what can that rest on? Well, that represents, first of all, that, that, that authenticates itself, first of all, on the reliability of Jesus. Let's talk about that for a minute. That Jesus was a historical figure. You know, there's a movement going around uh, not very many years back, the people said, well, I just don't believe that Jesus really existed. He wasn't a real person. Well, it's just ludicrous. I mean, there's just too much evidence. There's too much evidence that Jesus was a real person. If somebody said, I don't believe that Brian Washburn exists, we're all going to go, he's sitting right there. Too much evidence. That's just moronic. Yes, Jesus was a historical figure that he lived, that he taught, and that he did miraculous things. And then he died and was resurrected from the grave. Now, let me just give you kind of my little simplistic philosophy of life, okay? Here it is. If someone claims to be God and then rises from the dead, follow that guy. Right there. <laughs> Works for me, right? You know, often what people want to do is they want to take the route of just saying, well, you know, <clears throat> Jesus, he was just a great moral teacher. I mean, he wasn't God, but he, he was a great moral teacher. I, I, that's what I think who Jesus was. Well, the problem with that is that Jesus took that option away. By claiming to be God. I mean, look with me. John chapter 10, verse, starting verse 30. This is Jesus talking, and he said, 
I and the Father are one. What's he doing there? Claiming to be God. And they got that he was claiming to be God because verse 31 says, And again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And they said, we're not stoning you for any good works, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. There was no confusion here. Jesus was claiming to be God, and they understood that he was claiming to be God. Now, this is what led C.S. Lewis to conclude that there were really only three options when it comes to Jesus. Either he was Lord, he was God, he was who he claimed to be. Or option number two, he was a liar because he claimed to be God just as a mere man claiming to be God. And if he was just a mere man claiming to be God, that's a liar. And that certainly doesn't fit the category of a great moral teacher, does it? Or he was a lunatic. He's just crazy. I mean, when people go around today claiming to be God, what do we think about them? You're just nuts, right? And so C.S. Lewis said, you know, there's really only three options when it comes to Jesus. Either he was who he said he was, he was Lord, or he was a liar, or he was a lunatic. But for sure, he doesn't fit the category of a great moral teacher. See, we kind of, you hear people say this, they say, well, you know, it's just all a bunch of different routes, but they're all going the same place. It's just a bunch of ladders leaning up against the same wall. It's Christianity. It's all these other things. And again, that all sounds good. It just doesn't fit with Christianity and what Jesus had to say. In fact, listen to what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6. It says, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, Jesus not only claimed to be God, he claimed to be the exclusive right way to God. And then he authenticated that claim by dying for our sins on the cross and then being buried. You know, being buried, that proved he died because you don't bury living people. Being buried. And then he rose from the grave and then proved that he rose from the grave by showing himself to a bunch of people. He authenticated his claims. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, beginning in verse 6, For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and he was Buried. See, he authenticated his death by being buried. And he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared. See, he authenticated his resurrection by appearing to a bunch of people. It says to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living Though some have fallen asleep, at the time that Paul penned these words, at the time that these words were being circulated, many of these people were still walking around alive. Most of them were. See, it wasn't like, well, crazy Billy saw him, but we, you know, who can trust him? I mean, it was, 
It was hundreds of people. See, it's the reliability of Jesus. That's how we can put our confidence in that the God of the Bible is the one true God. And not only that, though, here's our second, is the reliability of the Bible itself. Now, Pastor Steve's going to talk more about this next week, so you'll want to be here. Uh, he's going to get into greater detail, but let me just give you just a few minutes worth here. The question is, how do we know that we can trust the Bible? I mean, why should we believe that this truth source is more reliable, is more dependable than, say, the Koran or the Book of Mormon or any other claimed truth source that you want to put out there? How, how do we know that we can trust this truth source, that this truth source is the most reliable? Well, again, just Cliff Notes version. I think first you go to just the consistency of the Bible. I mean, think about it. 66 books. You know, this isn't just one book. It's 66 different books compiled together. 66 different books written by 40 different authors. Not just one person, 40 different human beings added to this compilation of 66 books. It was written over a period of 4,000 years on three different continents in two different languages, and yet it boasts one single message. There's something consistent about that. One story that runs throughout this entire book of a God who created his creation to reign over. But then sin entered the picture, and that changed everything. Creation was broken. And so the rest of the Old Testament is God setting in place to be able to do two things, to redeem his creation and to reign again. And we get to the New Testament, and Jesus shows up on the scene proclaiming the kingdom of God. He talked more about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, than he did anything else. That's why this next series on Epic will be such a valuable series for all of us. Jesus shows up, but he was rejected by his own people. The own called out people that go way back to Genesis 12 when God selected Abraham and built a nation of which he would bring the Messiah through, that Jesus entered our world through, and yet he was rejected by his own people. And so then God reconfigures the plan so that now he has the people of God made up of Jews and non-Jews, made up of people of every tongue and tribe and nation. Aren't you glad? Open the doors to everybody. And then Jesus died and he rose again so that we could be redeemed from our sin and so that he could reign over us and through us to reign over his creation. And so we look forward to the day when he will fully reign by bringing everything under his feet. One story, cover to cover, the consistency of this book. But not only that, if you need more than that, I think you go 
to the prophecies of the Bible. Predictions, prophecies that were spoken, that were recorded of things that would happen, and they did. Not vague generalities, specific things that were written and came fulfilled just like they said. Some of them in the time periods that they said they would happen in. I mean, the prophecies, there's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that promised a Redeemer that were fulfilled in Jesus. Over 300 of those. I mean, the odds of that happening accidentally or coincidentally are just so beyond even a thinking person couldn't even go there. Christianity holds up to every scrutiny. You need to know that. And its trustworthiness rests on the reliability of Jesus and the Bible. And so that's why I would put forth not only theism, but Christian theism. That the God of the Bible is who is behind all of this, all of creation. And that he has revealed himself through His Son Jesus, who came and died for our sins on the cross and authenticated Himself by rising from the grave three days later and through the written Word of God. And so in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is God-breathed. Some of your translations say is inspired, but that's literally what it means. It means it's it's God-breathed. It's literally The words that had God spoken them himself, it's exactly what he would have spoken. That's why when we call this the word of God, that's literal. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flower fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You see, the B-I, yeah, the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. That's not just a good children's song, that's some solid truth. And so that's why I believe that the God of the Bible is the Creator. He is the true God. It's not just theism, it's Christian theism. Say, yeah, I get all that. But here's where my mind goes. Okay, well, so what? what What does that mean for me? What does that mean for how I live? For how I view things? Well, let's work through those eight worldview questions that Pastor Steve gave us the first week when we started into this and that we've kind of thought you can think through these questions with any worldview but let's think it through with Christian theism okay question number one okay well what is the nature of reality well the answer to that is it's all about God (laughs) it starts and ends with him he is the creator And the sustainer of life. Question number two. Well, how did it all get here? Well, God created the heavens and the earth and all that's within them. 
Question number three, is there a God? What's the answer to that one? Yes. Clearly yes. Just look around you if you need proof. Question number four, then okay, there's a God. What is the nature of man? What about people? How do we fit into this deal? Well, the answer to that is that we are the capstone of God's creation. We're created in the image of God, just a little lower than the angels, but the central focus of God's love. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2 about this. Beginning in verse 5, he says, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified What is mankind that you're mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. Translated, what's the big deal about people? Okay, he answers it. Verse 7, you made them a little lower than the angels. And you crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. That just as one day... Jesus will put everything under his feet. In the meanwhile, he's given us, as the capstone of his creation, the ability to put all the rest of creation under our feet. And in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. And yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while but is now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone and bringing many sons and daughters to glory. That even Jesus was made a little lower than the angels when he stepped into his creation, when he took on flesh and came and died tasting death for all of us so that we... People, the capstone of God's creation, created in God's image, could be made right with him, could become sons and daughters of glory. We, mankind, are the capstones of God's creation and the central focus of God's love. So question number five then, what is the basis of ethics and morality? Well, the answer to that is that it's God who establishes what is right and wrong, what is just and unjust. See, sometimes, you know, we we talk and say, well, you know, maybe that was right for him or maybe, you know what, we always have to come back to this book because it's God who has the right to establish. See, morality rests in the the, um, holiness and the justice of who God is. Question number six, so... What happens after we die? Well, this life is not all there is. We were created to live forever. And we will do so. Either in God's presence, having been forgiven of our sins through Jesus' shed blood, or suffering the consequences of God's wrath in hell in payment for my own sin. You know, sometimes people ask the question, well, how, you know, how could God send good people to hell? That's the wrong question to ask. 
See, when you understand that God is holy, and therefore all of us rest under the wrath of God, all of us deserve the wrath of God, the question to ask is, how could a holy God ever let anyone into heaven? It's only because of he loved us so much that he made a way through the shed blood of his son Jesus, who took the wrath for us, if we'll let him. Question number seven, then. So what's the meaning of history? Well, I think the answer to that is that it's his story. It's all about God's unfolding plan from eternity past to eternity future. It's his story. See, here's where... I'll give, you'll probably hear this analogy from me again because it makes good sense to me. We'll find out. You can tell me later if it makes good sense to you. I think this is where we get ourselves in a lot of trouble. Because what we do is, is, is we view our life like a movie, which I think is accurate. But the problem is we view it as, as this movie of which I am the star. You know, it's a movie about me. You know, I'm the central character and it all evolves about what's happening to me. Where the truth is, no, it's a movie about God. And it starts back here in eternity past, and it goes all the way through time to eternity future, and I'm like this little part in here. I mean, not only am I not the star, I'm not even in the credits. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so, I'm, I mean, you, see, you see what I'm saying? See, we get this all twisted, and we start thinking somehow like God is supposed to be Doing things to make me better. And, you know, and we get it all confused. See, it's not a movie about me. It's a movie about God. He's the star. Amen. See? And we just play this little part. And yet what is amazing in that is somehow this God cares about this little speck at this little part of the movie. That, that just, it, that's too great to comprehend, isn't it? So question number eight then, how can we know that we know? Well, the answer is it's because we're created in the image of God. And that's why we can think. And that's why we can know. But we've been impacted by the consequences of sin's entrance into the world, haven't we? None of us operates at full capacity. We're fallen. Creation is fallen. It's broken. Some of you, I noticed, are wearing glasses. You know why? Because you're broken. See? You're not perfect. If we dug deeper, it goes beyond our vision. You get into us and you realize, I'm broken a lot of places, right? See, we all bear the impact of sin. All of creation bears the impact of sin. And so we don't function at full capacity. But we can know... And understand, because God created us as intelligent. And he gives us the ability to choose. Now stay with me on this. In light of that, I think the only logical choice then is to surrender to him. As our Savior and Lord. 
I mean, if he is who he, if he is the great I am, if he is the creator, if he is the sustainer of all of this, if he is the central character in the movie from eternity past to eternity future, if he loves me despite my insignificance, they're, they're, they're the only logical thing to do is to give him everything, surrender everything. To surrender to him as our savior. To embrace the gospel. The good news of Jesus' death in my place. To absorb the wrath of God that I deserve. To embrace the gospel and make him my savior. But not only that, to embrace the gospel and make him my Lord. See, to keep embracing the gospel. Not religion. See, what religion is, is this... This, I do these things in order to win favor with that deity, whatever it is. See, that's not Christianity. Christianity is because of the shed blood of Jesus. If, I, if I'm in Christ, if I've received that, I already rest in his favor. I don't do things to get favor with God. I live out the favor of God. And because of that, because of that, the only thing that makes any sense is to surrender to him, to rely on him fully, to abandon everything over to him. It's the only thing that makes any sense. So why don't we do it? Well, that's a whole other sermon series. <laughs> There's all sorts of reasons. It's because of lack of discipline. It's because of the lies that we believe as broken people. It's because of the strongholds that we allow to take up root in our life because of those. I, it's, it's a lot of things. But when you peel it all away, the only thing that makes any sense is to let them have it all. To not hold anything back. To not fail to trust Him with any area. To not look for life in anything other than Him. The only thing that makes any sense, wouldn't you agree? If he's the great I am. That makes me the great I ain't, right? <laughs> I gotta make it real simple for me to get it. I'm not even the great I ain't. I'm the not so much great I ain't, or the less than great I ain't. I don't know what I am, you know, you get the picture. Now, here's the last thing I wanna say. You know what it means when a pastor says that, don't you? <laughs> Nothing. Okay. Um, <laughs> last point I want to make. It's easy to talk about worldviews and worldviews, you know, in this kind of etherical, brainiac kind of concept thing. But you know how we reveal what our worldviews really are? Is in the choices that we make. See, the decisions that we make. That's why we want to say, oh yeah, my worldview is based upon God's word. Yep, yep, yep. But, but a lot of times it isn't, and the way we know it is because of the choices, the decisions that we make. Okay? So I wanted to give us a chance to kind of maybe practice this a little bit. In a minute I'm going to pray, and then we're going to do what we always do here to kind of finish up. Um, we're going to spend the last part of our time, and we're going to do basically three things. Uh, we're going to worship a little bit more. And so let's think about that. W worship. 
when my worldview is really based upon the fact that God is the great I am, how could I have anything more important to do than worship? And it, it, we, we all have different ways and different manners of expression. Don't get caught into all of that stuff. But how could I not want to express to him? See, worship a lot of times is praying to God, and sometimes it's declaring things to God and to the world. You know, when my worldview really is wrapped around Christian theism, I, I want to worship the great I am. So we're going to worship a little bit. Um, no more than usual, just a couple songs. And then uh, we have our offering. You know, um, giving really says a lot about our worldview, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. You know, I've gone too, I've gone too far now, haven't I? Um, <laughs> no, it, it's, it's, it's not about amount. It's not, don't get hung up into that. It's, it, it's not that. It's when I decide to give or I hold back, what is that choice saying about my view? You know, am, am I depending all upon me or am I depending upon the great I am? See, am I a naturalist or am I a Christian theist? Is he the God who has full ability to give and withhold at his choosing? See, it, it, this gets very practical, doesn't it? So we're going to have a chance to, to give our offerings and don't again this isn't about what the, don't be looking at the guy next to you what they put in our i mean that's this isn't about what anybody else does it's about what we do each of us right so we're gonna have our offering and then and then we're gonna respond and you know we give different ways to respond you know we have prayer partners that are up here and maybe there's some of us that would benefit from just going and praying maybe you're facing something Maybe there's confusion in life. Maybe you would just benefit from somebody praying over you or speaking into you. But a lot of times, maybe, you know, we hear God prompting us and we don't respond to that because we don't think like a Christian theist. Now, again, I'm not saying all of us should go run up to prayer partner, but our reason for going or not going should be based upon our worldview of that there is a God. He is the great I am. He is in control of everything. I want to surrender everything to him and follow and love him with all that I have. And so if that's going on with you, then respond that way. If it's something that you just need to talk to God in the midst of worship, then respond that way. But, but see, there's, we like to take stuff like this and have these deep theoretical discussions that doesn't change anything about how I live. But the way I live, the choices I make, really says everything about what my worldview really is. Now again... Don't hear me point any fingers because I don't do half of this stuff. But I want to. I want to. Because I get it. I get that he is the great I am. That he is the one true God. And that he's revealed himself through Jesus. And, and he's revealed himself through this book. And that it only makes sense for me to line up according to what this book tells me to do and not to do. And that this Jesus loved me enough to die on a cross to pay for the wrath that I deserve. And so let's worship him. Can we do that? Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you again for the amazing thing that you did in dying for me on the cross. Forgive me for taking it so casually so often. So I pray that together as we worship you right now, 
that you will receive our voices as expressions of woefully inadequate thank yous. And we just acknowledge, Heavenly Father, that you are the one true God. That you created it all. That you created each of us. That we have our next breath only through your decision to give it to us. And so, Father, I pray for any of us. If we're, if we're struggling with something and, and we just... It's just hard for us to grab hold of trust that we would take the first step to believe in the great I am to do that. That, Lord, if we're hurting, if we're sick, if we're whatever's going on, God, that we would just throw it on you and rely upon you that we would surrender everything. Yeah. And so as we worship you now, be pleased with this because it's all about you. In your glory. So receive this now. In your name we pray.